welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. Good day, everyone. This is Steve King. I'm the managing director here at Cyber Theory. Today, we're going to explore the world of uh, Kubernetes and cloud containers with Dr. Nikki Robinson, an expert in statistical data analysis, quantitative methods, and risk management. Currently a full-time security architect with IBM, Nikki also serves as a fellow at the Institute for Critical Infrastructure Technology, whose mission is to cultivate a cybersecurity renaissance that will improve the resiliency of our nation's 16 critical infrastructure sectors, defend our democratic institutions, and hopefully empower generations of global cybersecurity leaders. And boy, I'm all for that. So I I wish you the best in that regard. We definitely need it, uh, Nikki. Yeah, for sure. And of course, Nikki holds multiple industry certifications, including the CISSP and CEH. She's a board member for the FBI InfraGuard Maryland chapter and is actively involved in several different cybersecurity industry organizations. So welcome, Dr. Robinson. I'm glad you could join us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Sure. So let's jump right in here. Why do we insist on making our lives so complicated and difficult? Oh, that's a great... (laughs) Is that the whole question? That's the Um, whole question. No, I love it. It's funny because this is really... This question is really why I wanted to get into security. You know, I started in IT operations, managing a virtualized environment, did some network engineering. and, And really, when I got into... Uh, sort of being a system owner, I realized how complex, especially with integrating security and security practices into what I was doing, how complex the environment really gets. I mean, you add GRC, uh, regulations, uh, policies, procedures, tools, all all these things. And, And so I'm not sure why we insist on making our lives so complicated. I guess I can't answer that question, but I can say I think it's one of the reasons why I, I really love being in security. I, I love the idea of trying to break down a lot of these complicated environments into something that's tangible and and easy to actually manage. Yeah. Back in the day when we were trying to figure out how to do all this stuff, the uh, standard sort of protocol with the new systems was to sort of layer them on top of existing systems or turn the old ones off in some way that would make them, you know, inoperable, but still there, except that we didn't do a very good job of that. I don't think people do a very good job of that. And I think we do that today uh, on a much grander scale. And we do that with tools in particular, right? So um, without getting, you know, too far down that rabbit hole, I we have a very, very complex environment, and I think that behavior hasn't changed in in quite a few years. So, right. um, one one of the you know things in my mind that immediately comes to mind are Kubernetes, and maybe for those that aren't familiar with containers and Kubernetes, maybe you could explain those technologies to our audience and and maybe why organizations seem to be increasingly adopting 
those technologies over traditional forms of storage and program development? Sure. Yeah, I think containers um, using something like Kubernetes, at the end of the day, I think the the idea here is to make well, a couple of things, right? One would be to make development easier for developers to sort of separate the applications from the environments, you know, from the OS levels, try to manage them sort of separately, which helps you know, increase the ability to develop faster and easier. And uh, so as far as I think application development goes, it really makes that area a lot easier. You can use, you know, you could have one container, you could have multi-container applications. You can, there's so many different configurations that you can do with it. And the idea is that it's ease of use. You know, it's not like standing up you know, 40 servers from a template anymore. You know, you're using containers and building these environments, ideally uh, limiting how many different uh, machines or environments that you're logging into, uh, how many applications that you're logging into. The idea is to consolidate configuration and management. So containers can be really powerful. They They can in some ways, in some ways, I think we'll get to how in some ways it can make the environments more complex. But in some ways, especially if you are uh, starting with a new environment and you're standing up containerized environment versus you know a virtual desktop environment or virtual servers, things like that, it can be easier to manage, especially if you you know have some sort of previous uh, skill set or experience with it, it can be really easy to uh, set up and configure. So I would say from a why are we doing it sort of perspective? That's really why. I think it's from an administration standpoint can be easier as well. But I think on the flip side of that, uh, one of the other things to remember around you know, using something like Kubernetes and containers is that there are still a lot of the same principles that we have to consider. But the idea of you know, how much time am I spending on administrative overhead for managing you know, siloed uh, servers or applications on servers and things like that. That's sort of a different way of thinking about it. So containers sort of help to ease administration for developers. Yeah. And not unlike so many things, you know, on paper, all of that makes complete sense. Why would you not want to separate those components out? Why would you want to replicate the same stuff you replicated the last time you wrote a system that looked very similar to the one you're writing today, you know, the same argument for APIs, right? I mean, why would right. I want to, you know, write this for the sixth time when the next time I need uh, whatever the function is, I'll just call it out of a library. And then, you know, that occurred famously to somebody in what, 1996 or something. And and the rest is history around there as well. But, um, you know, these things take on lives of their own. And open source is terrific, and again, on paper. But when it's not managed in the intended manner, it also uh, has a tendency to expose itself to errors and mistakes that human beings typically kind of make. And so, right. and, and maybe you have, you know, some commentary around that as well. I. I saw that recently uh, researchers had, in a report, had found like 380,000 publicly exposed Kubernetes API servers. And it doesn't, you know, it makes no sense. You know, people like spinning these things up and just leaving them when they're no longer useful. 
Yeah, it's the same way I feel about, you know, sort of this race to the cloud, right? This idea of, well, we have these on-prem environments. If we go to cloud environments, we move uh, away from a physical data center to a cloud environment for the business, right? It makes more sense. It's potentially reducing cost, uh, reducing management in-house, turning over. Like if you, you know, if you don't have a dedicated security team or a dedicated cloud engineering team, something like that. Uh, that you can still do application development using cloud systems without having to manage the infrastructure. So there are, in the same way that there's so many benefits to moving to the cloud, when a lot of uh, organizations started moving to the cloud, there were all of those exposed S3 buckets, the tons of uh, data breaches with misconfigurations around S3 buckets. And I think it's very much the same way when it comes to Kubernetes containers that there, there have been a lot of them stood up. And I'll talk about API security in a second, because I think that's part of the conversation, but sort of a different piece of this. But if in the same way, if you don't understand cloud security architecture or mm-hmm. like identity and access management principles, zero trust principles, those types of things and how to apply them in a cloud environment, it's very much the same way that it would happen in a, in a containerized environment that if the proper configuration settings aren't there, you're still potentially exposing these environments publicly. And even if there are, you know, some considerations up front uh, without a proper, you know, sort of investigation by security architects and engineers during the design and and development phases, uh, it can lead to these publicly exposed Kubernetes clusters or um, misconfigured containers, data breaches, all of, all of those things, because, you know, without the the proper sort of knowledge on how to secure them by design, that's where sort of all of that comes from. And then to speak on the API security portion, because I think APIs in general, API security in general, this is something I've I've gotten really interested in, especially in the last like I would say six to eight months, on what API security means. Because APIs in general, they make our lives easier uh, from a development standpoint, from an administrative standpoint. They are fantastic. We can use them for all kinds of things. But because they're so commonly used and used in lots of different ways, there is the possibility for you know human error, for them being set up insecurely, for them being integrated or having dependencies that we're not aware of. So uh, API security really, I think, has become a big issue, uh, something that I'm certainly concerned about because in the same way as, as you're setting up you know, these containers or these clustered environments, if you're just setting up API APIs everywhere with API keys and you're sharing them and you're using them in different ways, uh, you know, you don't sort of know the scope of what the potential, you know, risks might be unless there was some sort of risk analysis or, or you know, co- done was sort of when it was like, hey, we're setting up this environment, we, we're going to have open and exposed APIs uh, here, here, and here. What do we need to know? There's actually a... OWASP, uh, you know, their typical top 10, but I, I love in the last like year or two years, uh, maybe a little longer than that, but they've been branching out into all these other different OWASP top 10s and they have one on API security. If anyone hasn't checked it out and they're interested in what API security means, they have a fantastic list available to sort of get an idea of like, right. What, uh, and setting- so what do we do about that? I mean, you know, if I agree with you that all of this begs uh, the introduction of human behavior, and human behavior is fraught with 
errors and and uh, mistakes and you know confusion around something that looks right but isn't you know what do we do about it yeah i think the biggest thing to do is if you know as a developer or an engineer and you're standing up these environments and you don't have the expertise in security around these environments which i think it's you know unfair to assume that everybody has to know everything about security but then there should be a security engineer or someone who has at least some experience with this involved in the architecture and design of whatever the application or development environment that you're creating and building so that you can get those answers from the ground up uh, and, and be involved, have them be involved initially. Or even when you get to a place, if you've got this environment running for six months and you're like, ooh, I haven't had anyone look at this. Maybe I should have someone come by and look. If you're not an expert, have an expert come by and, and check it out because you don't know what you don't know. Right. Did uh, much of your development experience was that was that all cloud native, or did you do did you sort of start life in on prem a bit as well? Yeah. So I started life on prem. My undergrad was actually IT and software engineering. So I did a lot of did some C plus plus, a lot of SQL, a lot of Java from the web development side. You know, building and managing websites too. A lot of CSS. Uh, so HTML, but yeah, but so started on-prem and then uh, just uh, in the last, you know, five, six, seven years, uh, dealing more with uh, cloud environments as they've become more, really more prevalent, Every, you know, and everybody's sort of looking to cloud solutions. Yeah. And do you think, I mean, it, I've seen numbers that suggest that we're as high as 98, 99% even of uh, new code that that's all reused code uh, mm. that comes out of, you know, repos. And is that really a good idea? You know, one of the things that I find hard to believe if anyone claims that they do is that this code is, this reusable code is actually vetted. You know, there's so many dependencies upon, that the APIs themselves require mm -hmm. that are somewhere out in the, you know, on somewhere out on an attack surface somewhere. And, you know, I don't think we've got a good handle on what gets called, what doesn't get called under what circumstances one does and what doesn't, uh, let alone that the actual functionality of the API that's being called by the API that you're using in your code. Yeah, it's I, I think it's absolutely a big challenge right now because it's sort of the way technology goes, right? Like we adopt new methods and new ways of doing things because it makes development easier. But th then security sort of comes along after and is like, oh, hey, hold on a second. We're actually a little concerned about this. Uh, it is difficult, I think, at this point to know what dependencies exist, what third parties or fourth parties, fourth level parties. Now we're talking about fourth and fifth level parties that are involved. And once you add that much uh, sort of different dependencies and then different groups that you may not even know who's managing things. I was reading an article today about how uh, lots of there are uh, bad actors, malicious actors out there that are offering to maintain code. They're offering to maintain these open source libraries and they're injecting malware or other malicious code into these into these open source libraries. That's pretty scary. So no, I, I think it's it's definitely a, a big concern uh, when we're talking about adopting open source, open source software and, and what does open source software security mean to me 
I think you have to sort of assume and, you know, I'm in security, so I am a self-proclaimed doom and gloom sort of expert, but I think you have to assume at some point in your, the amount of dependencies that you have or in the amount of libraries that you, that you may be using that there may be malicious code in there. So you have to sort of assume that it's there and then you can manage risk from there. It's a new service called Malware as a Service. Is that how they're working? Oh, yeah. Mal- malware as a Service, Ransomware as a Service. I mean, it's all, yeah. Fantastic. I mean, it's, yeah, it's all out there. Yeah, it's great. Let's talk about cloud, for example. I mean, we, as long as we're talking about complexity here, the rush to the cloud makes sense, right? For all the right reasons. Hybrid cloud makes sense for those right reasons. And, but when we do it, uh, the, the doing of it is not simple uh, any more than, well, let's take container technology and not just isolate Kubernetes, because I think Kubernetes was designed by a bunch of folks at Google that wanted that had a little internal contest that said, look at how smart I am, because I, I, I'm going to build some shit here that nobody else can figure out. But on the container in the cloud side, both of those are complex technologies, uh, and it's where a lot of breaches occur. In terms of that that level of complexity, do you have any thoughts about you know how, wh- how we get our hands around the software supply chain as as it relates to either or both? Sure. I mean, the biggest thing is awareness, which probably seems like a you know sort of a uh, yeah, of course. But I think too many times, you know, we we want to what you know what is the fastest way I can get this done, and and you know most of the time it's probably because there's dollars involved. You know, either you're supporting a customer, or you're developing a solution, or uh, you know what whatever it might be. But I think the the real challenge, it you know, to to organizations and to really cloud environments in general is sort of what level of support do you need if you're trying to save money then you're not going to have as much infrastructure support that's managed by whatever cloud provider it is. But if you are not trying to save money, but you know that you don't have the expertise or the skill set in your environment to manage the security, like the patching or the sort of the vulnerability management basic components of the environment, you can turn that over, that infrastructure over to somebody else and let them do that. So I think that's that's like the biggest one of the biggest thoughts when it comes to cloud specifically is you know if you're if you are trying to save money by going to the cloud you may not be saving on security. There are a lot of free security tools so I would say get educated on those and know what is available but you've got to sort of break that down to what's going to be applicable to your environment and sort of what skill set uh you know you have available to manage those environments. When it comes to open source software, supply chain security, software supply chain security. Uh, I really think a, a lot of organizations are going to have to have a software supply chain security program. It's just, you're really going to have to have it, especially if you are heavy into development um, and building solutions, building tools, or leveraging open source uh, software, uh, which most people are. So I think having a really good program in place is going to be really, really important to making sure that things like Log4j you know, don't have as much of an impact. And that's why I say like the, I think one of the biggest things you can do is sort of have an incident response plan. Just assume that something is going to happen. If you want to leverage this technology, that's, that's fine. It's understandable. But if you can have at least an IR plan in place, 
understand what you're going to do when something happens, then you can recover a lot faster and not have it impede you as much. So there's certainly mechanisms around it, you know, and not to say don't use it at all, but if you're going to use it, just sort of one, be careful and two, just be prepared when something goes wrong. Yeah. And it doesn't appear to me and that just from maybe my vantage point, but I, we see an awful, of course, I'm, you know, this is my business and has been for a long time. And I, I just don't see a lot of people either, you know, developing, testing, involved with their IRPs. And, and I wonder why that is. Do you have any, I mean, since it's sort of common knowledge, right. And it's like, oh, if you're going to do that, you need an incident response plan. Great. We all understand that. Why don't we do it? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, again, you know, sort of circling back to really your first question is, um, why do we make this so difficult, right? It's sort of like, we have the tools in place, we can do this. I think the biggest thing is, and I can only speak for, I know, like, you know, smaller organizations or midsize organizations, how big are their security programs? You know, how much of a, uh, how much do they really have to spend on a program or how much are they leveraging, you know? And so I think to sort of put a really good incident response program in place is really essential, but I don't know that it's it sort of gets as big of a play, right? You know, it's not like a really exciting topic to talk about your incident response plan and your communication plan and all that, but you know, threat hunting is exciting. Pen testing is exciting. Red teaming, like all these things are are sort of the exciting areas of security, but the building in the resiliency isn't always, I think, the first thing that people think of. And that's not to say that people don't, but I I think you're right. I think that IR plans need to be not just in place, but then tested really frequently and to sort of get a little sidetracked. But I think this is why the principles of like chaos engineering and chaos security engineering are so interesting because you take that IR plan, sort of that reactive approach into this proactive approach where you're testing your environment consistently uh, to make sure that your security configurations are in place and working as expected. And that way you're not waiting for something to happen. You are actively testing your environment. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, patching and uh, and just general hygiene aren't very exciting either, but there are the they seem to be the cause of most of our breaches. So um, something's got to give here. You know, you mentioned chaos engineering. Did, did, am I mistaken or did you teach chaos engineering at some point? I've done a few talks on uh, chaos engineering and chaos security engineering principles. I got really interested in this like two years ago, about two year, uh, year and a half ago, because I, I was looking into chaos engineering and sort of what they did at uh, Netflix and a couple of the other big organizations. And I love the hypothesis-based sort of scientific method approach of chaos engineering. You know, it sounds like, oh, chaos engineering, I'm just going to break stuff. But it really is this methodical approach to... I have a hypothesis. I believe that if I change X, that Y will occur. And then you can test it and then just see if it works. And you have this iterative approach to, you know, I think this might break. Let's see if it breaks. It appears to me to be a much more rigorous approach than, you know, some sort of random pen testing or, you know, red team activity as well, you know, which is appeals because then you've got some audit trail to kind of, you know, this is where we started. This is where we ended up. And and here are the four places that we really need to do something about. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also I asked that because as you're probably aware, we're building out our cyber ed.io uh, training program here. And 
at ISMG. Uh, it's one of the things that I'm involved in, with as well. And I would invite you if you're interested in, you know, putting together a, I don't know, two or three module course on chaos engineering and how you how you put that together and what your expectations might be around that, that uh, we'd be delighted to work with you on that. Oh yeah. We'll have to, uh, we'll have to talk about that. Okay. And for those that are looking to learn more about Kubernetes and container security, do you have any recommended resources, you know, aside from our training? <laughs> right. Shameless, uh, shameless plug. Yeah, no, I, I highly suggest there are a lot of really good resources out there. Uh, specifically, we're talking about, you know, container security and cloud security sort of principles. I know the Linux Foundation has some really good specifically cloud security type stuff. And of course, uh, Udemy, they have some good stuff too. But there is a lot of really good open source information out there. Like even in, I, I highly suggest, especially if you're interested in sort of security from like a pen testing angle or getting an idea of sort of how would an attacker get into a system and maybe why, there's Hack the Box. Um, that's a great resource. And then I have to, because he wrote the book on security chaos engineering, but Aaron Reinhardt, I highly suggest picking up that book too. That's a great resource. If you're interested in, in chaos security engineering principles and, and how they might apply to you know taking incident response into a proactive sort of view, that's another really good resource. Okay, great. Thank you. The last question is uh, that I have is around vulnerability management. And I wonder why it's still so difficult for companies, you know, that I mean, it's obviously why it's important to patch and mitigate end-of-life software and all of those issues. Is that still, you know, is vulnerability scanning still a major component to secure a network and if you had a continuous monitoring program? And or what are the other, what are the current issues around around patching and um, and end-of-life? I think one of the biggest problems is that there are so many vulnerabilities released every day, and just from a you know, just from a mental standpoint, when you're looking at a vulnerability scanning tool or, you know, a report that you're getting on vulnerabilities, it can be really overwhelming just looking at how many vulnerabilities exist in the environment. And so I think it's really difficult because we, as an industry, make vulnerability reporting really complicated instead of saying, hey, you have these 10 assets, they're the most vulnerable, patch these first get those done. Okay, now we need to focus on the next, the next, the next, and, and making it this iterative sort of approach. But I think it's also, it's it can be really time consuming. Patch management can be really time consume, consuming. Uh, if you don't have, you know, if you're not running in like, you know, if you're running VMs, it's so much easier. You just update the base template and then push it out to all your VMs, boom, done. Versus, you know, I have this many servers, they're not based on a template. Now I've got to patch each one. I don't have a patch management strategy. I don't. So I, I think those are a lot of the basics that sometimes get overlooked, which is, you know, A, I need a patch management strategy. And B, how do I automate that patch management strategy and take as much of the manual over, you know, uh, sort of overhead off of me and, and automate as much as possible? So I think those are two big things that can really impact an organization positively. But I think it's just still really difficult because people have gotten into this big tech debt space, you know, with so many old applications, so many old or end of life operating systems that they're using. And because they feel like, well, I'm supporting this environment, I have to use it, I can't get off of it. 
And I think if we can change that mindset and say, actually, if you, if when you, if you want to move to the cloud, or if you are thinking about moving to the cloud or moving from cloud to containers, you can actually use that as a really good opportunity to remove a lot of the tech debt, to remove a lot of the vulnerabilities and start with updated software, updated libraries, updated all those things. But that would have to be security by design in your new environment. But so I think right now it's just so difficult because a lot of people are still in these hybrid situations. They've got some on-prem, they've got some cloud, or maybe they have hybrid cloud. Uh, so we've made our environment so big and complex that uh, vulnerability management becomes really challenging. <laughs> yeah, I laugh because, it, you know, you obviously uh, that last statement is after my own heart. I'm uh, convinced that complexity is our is our biggest problem and our insistence upon you know looking the other way right that we don't want to, we don't want to deal with it i mean who would right i mean it's just enormous the size of the problem but yeah i think that i mean from a lecture notes point of view the your last com- set of comments about vulnerabilities uh, it, it was terrific and a great way to end our session and i hope that we can come back together again in a few months and and talk some more about this because this problem, you know, is not going away. It's getting worse every day. Our adversaries don't share a lot of these problems. And so it weakens our sort of overall ability to compete as well. And a whole bunch of other things that that uh, we don't have time to cover right now. But I really do appreciate you taking time out, Nikki, from your schedule to join us and help us understand some of the more esoteric parts of the cybersecurity puzzle today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I will look forward to having you again soon. And thank you to our audience for spending a half an hour with us today. And hopefully it was useful to you as well. So with that, take care and we'll talk again soon. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Cyber Theory or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again. <laughs>